Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 133 and moves towards peace in this long war are afoot. We will also hear about the death of Cecil John Rhodes. As we heard last week, the Netherlands government had decided by January 1902 that the South African war was no longer viable for the Boers. Even the latest successes in March, where General Dallare and Jan Smuts had been victorious in battles in the Western Transvaal and Northern Cape respectively, had failed to really convince their closest ally in Europe that they were likely to defeat the British. The successes by Smuts around a Cape were more good news, but all these skirmishes were in the non-strategic parts of South Africa. The Boers could do nothing about the increased production on the mines, for one, which began producing gold and other commodities. While much of the country was still denuded, burnt, destroyed, the main cities were functioning, and things were slowly returning to a version of normal. There were around 6,000 gold mine stamps in South Africa at the start of the war. These are machines that crush rock before the all-important metal within is extracted. Whether it is copper, gold, silver, or any other precious mineral inside a rock, the mine stamp was used to pulverize the stone from where the ore would be removed. Most were steam or water-driven, and the vast majority had been mothballed at the start of the war as miners fled Johannesburg. But by January 1902, at least 1,075 of these mine stamps were functioning in the Transvaal. Gold output was surging from a lowly 7,400 ounces in May 1901 to a much more productive 70,000 ounces in January 1902. The financiers were happy. The British Empire was getting some of its money back. Things were looking up. February production climbed still further to 81,000 ounces, and by March, 1,700 mine stamps were online and 104,000 ounces of gold found its way onto the train south to South Africa's ports. That was still some way off the 300,000 ounces the mines were pumping out before the start of the Boer War, but you can imagine how each ounce was putting the bounce back in the bankers' steps as they read their weekly updates in the smoking rooms in London. Yet, even with the mines operating at a third of their production capacity, the two new colonies of the Free State and Transvaal were already self-sufficient when it comes to revenue. Lord Milner, the British High Commissioner, was far happier too. He wanted Lord Kitchener and his army out of South Africa so he could get the country back to full production. Milner's master plan was to flood the mines after the war ended with cheap black labour, which was the second main Boer fear before the war. First on the list of fears had been the filthy Eightlanders, the British working class who flooded in to work the mines. Second were the black South Africans, the Boers believed should be kept as far away as possible from towns and cities. These matters were somewhere on the lists the Boers held as they gathered in Claxthorpe for their first meeting since the previous year. Remember, Lord Kitchener had accepted a request by the Boers for their generals and political leadership to meet to discuss possible terms after he'd reached out to President Berger of the Transvaal. In England, Rudyard Kipling was churning out his poems and stories and he wrote at this time that not by lust of peace or show, not by peace herself betrayed, peace herself must they forego, till that peace be fitly made. Like Milner, Kipling believed the Boers must be made to come to the peace table with cap in hand, not as equals, but as vanquished people. Yet the Boers were of the opinion that while they were not defeated, the war was unsustainable. Moreover, 
the mine production was really the death knell for the Boer military plans. One of the main strategies employed by the Boers in the final phase of the war was to wear down the officers and men, costing the empire millions of pounds. General de Wett and General Smuts and the others were hoping that eventually the British would give up on their plans. Now the mines were running, production was ramping up month by month, and there was nothing that de Wett or de la Rey, Smuts or Butter could do about it. So, over time in history, the idea of sapping an empire's energy by sniping away at its heels is not a bad strategy. It works, it has worked, and it will work in the future. However, for the Boers, it had not. Their attacks were being pushed further and further away from the centres of power, becoming sideshows that were good for folk PR, but largely irrelevant from a strategic warfare point of view. So, the Boers gathered for the internal meeting in Klagstorp on the 9th of April, 1902. This time, things were very different from the previous Boer gathering to discuss peace, which took place in Waterfall on the 20th of June, 1901. Since then, tens of thousands of civilians, black and white, had died in the concentration camps. Kitchener's scorched earth policy had destroyed the agriculture in the Transvaal and Free State. The two governments held their meeting on the afternoon of the same day they arrived. The South African Republic, or the Transvaal, was represented by Vice States President S.W. Berger, Commandant General Louis Boerter, Secretary of State F.W. Reitz, General De La Rey, and ex-General L.J. Mayer, as well as J.C. Kroch. Although not a member of the government, State Attorney L. Jacobs was present. On behalf of the Free State, there was State President M.T. Stain, Commander-in-Chief General Christian de Wett, and Vice-Commander-in-Chief Judge J.B.M. Herzog. General de Wett had some personal notes about the meeting, which is fortunate because in his words, it was decided that no minutes should be taken. Before further discussion, the Boer generals needed to provide an update of the real situation in the country. Boerter went first, describing how he was basically stuck in the northern Natal region, followed by Christian de Wett, who painted a rather more optimistic picture, and finally General de la Rey, who said his men wanted to fight on. President Berger of the Transvaal asked whether an interview with Lord Kitchener should be requested, and if that was the case, what the Boers should demand. President Stain said he was of the same opinion as in June 1901. He wanted independence. There would be no power sharing with the British. If the English now refuse to grant independence, then the war must continue, he said. Boerter explained that while there were differences in his regions, some of his people were upbeat, others negative, the overall picture was discouraging. The drives involving British columns across the eastern Transvaal and the blockhouses had taken their toll. In the space of a year, the number of men you could call on had almost halved from over 9,500 to 5,200. 400 of those were on foot. He was struggling with basic food supply, and there were no cattle left. Communication with the outside world was extremely difficult. Much more worrying for Boerter, however, was the number of armed Zulus his men were forced to fight. This was an ominous sign and an indication just how the English tactics had altered and the Boers in the northern Zululand region were coming across more aggressive black soldiers. The Zulus also considered this a perfect moment to mobilise their MPs and perhaps indulge in a little bloodletting. In the Cape, the guerrilla strategy had failed. Yes, the number of rebels signing up had increased from 2,000 to 2,600. 
There were around 15,000 Boers in total across the whole of South Africa who were still active in the field. But what about the people? And that's what Boer asked. But what about the people? The generals knew they were all prepared to fight on. To persist and die like men or until we are banished to far off islands but we have a duty towards the people. This is interesting in that this was almost exactly the kind of conversation the apartheid government was having with itself in 1988 and 1989 just as the Cold War ended and Swiss banks refused to roll over South Africa's debt. The Fapla or Angolan army with Cuban backing had posed a major problem at the Battle of Quito Canabali in southern Angola. The Hawks in the then P.W. Boote government wanted to fight on, but the moderates, like F.W. de Klaak, wanted to negotiate with the African National Congress. And in the 80s, it was all about the duty of the leaders towards the folk. Ditto, 1902. So on the 9th of April, sitting in Klaakstorp, the Boer leadership faced a simple scenario that was difficult to resolve. An independent future or physical survival? It was a desperate question to answer. These men had seen thousands of their brothers die in combat, fighting the enemy, and now had to put their personal traumas away and think about the future. Could they work with their enemy in a future state? For free state leaders like Stein and De Wett, it was independence or death. For the Transvaal leaders, Boerter and Reitz, it was survive as a people first, live to fight another day. That's the very principle of the first tactics the Boers had used against the British in battles and was now the obvious principle for negotiating peace. For Stein and De Wett, it was about self-respect, but even they deep down had to admit that self-respect was useless if the self was dead. That's just dumb. On one point, they all agreed that they had to sit down with Lord Kitchener to see what exactly the British would consider a reasonable proposal and then they'd take it from there. Eventually, after much debate for the remainder of that day, the Boers drafted a proposal. It outlined that the Boers recognised what they called the conciliatory spirit which inspires the government of His Britannic Majesty and also of the desire to make an end to the strife. The proposal included a request to meet face-to-face with Lord Kitchener to talk about the peace at a time and place that suited him. The two presidents duly signed the proposal and it was sent off to Kitchener, who received it within a day. Meanwhile, back in Klagstorp, a smaller working group or commission, as they called it, was set up to quickly outline what exactly the Boers' position would be. And the next morning, the 10th of April, the commission reported that the Boers should demand arrangements of a customs union, granting of the franchise for all, demolition of forts including blockhouses, Equal rights for Afrikaans, Dutch and English, a reciprocal amnesty, and arbitration on any matters to include equal numbers from both sides. There was no mention of the British taking control of both the Transvaal and Free State. The vet was forthright. I would rather be banished than sacrifice one iota of our independence. Stein and Herzog echoed that sentiment. Delaray, too, his mind still full of the Battle of Tweerbosch, where he had captured Lord Methuen, and he said he was in favour of continuing the war. That made him the only Transvaaler to take an unambiguous stand. All the rest had reservations, Berger and Boerter in particular, with Berger saying, Our position is getting weaker by the day. Winter was on its way. 
which meant that the burghers will have no choice but to give in to the enemy. Our nation has always had its share of stalwarts and cowards. Berger looked at his colleagues and warned about the effect of continuing the war, saying there would be a cost with the English ensuring that they were completely annihilated. Thus, for whom will we have fought? he asked. And so, the Boer generals and political leaders were put aboard an armoured train, which then steamed off to Pretoria in order to meet with Lord Kitchener. The train clanked into Pretoria on the evening of the 11th of April, 1902. Was this the victory that Lord Milner had hoped for, where he would have the ability to recast South Africa in a mould of his making? But, deep down, Milner was worried, because he was a technocrat and he hated politicians, with a passion that is quite illuminating. He referred to the Parliament back in London as that mob in Westminster. What, with our sentimentality, our party system, our government by committee, our mandarins, our society and our generals, the game is just hopeless. Our political organization is just thoroughly rotten, almost non-existent, he had written in a letter. What made Milner slightly more paranoid was the fact he'd not even been invited to the first meeting between the British and the Boers when it came to the peace talks. It was only Kitchener and his close advisers and the Boers who were together in Pretoria on the 12th of April, and Milner was only going to be allowed to take part later. He was chafing, to put it mildly. Peace for politicians meant compromise, and the Boers were unlikely to come to surrender without some kind of terms. This wasn't General Paulus at Stalingrad. These were men who were coming to talk about whether or not to continue fighting based on a negotiated solution. They weren't surrounded out of food, water, ammunition and motivation, like the German Sixth Army. Lord Milner had written, There is no compromise in South Africa, in a letter drafted December 1901, and he had not changed his mind. He was worried that Kitchener may do the honourable enemy kind of negotiating tactic and give in to some of the Boers' demands. However, even Lord Kitchener, who was prepared for a bit of give and take just to end this never-ending war, was taken aback by the Boers' proposal he saw on the 12th of April, the day the two sides met in the Transvaal capital. But that's for next week. Meanwhile, the icon of empire, Cecil John Rhodes, had died at the age of 48. The sudden announcement on March 26, 1902 was a shock, although the man who gave his name to an entire country was not exactly loved. Remember, how he had bullied and mentally tortured the poor Kekovich, commander of the British forces in Kimberley, during the siege. And Rhodes' stint in Cape politics had been a disaster. And furthermore, he was arrested in September 1901 in an extremely unsavory fraud case involving a promiscuous Russian princess. I don't have the space to cover that here, but if you're interested, go Google Princess Radzivil. She was one of a kind. So, by early 1901, Rhodes was extremely ill and living in a small cottage in Cape Town in a suburb called Musenberg, which overlooks the beautiful False Bay. It's ironic that one of the richest men in the world at this stage was suffering from tuberculosis. His health was going downhill. He wanted to live as close as possible to the sea and enjoy the fresh breezes from the south. Rhodes actually was a man of simple tastes, and the furniture in the cottage was plain and sparse. He preferred this cottage to his other residences, including his 
great Groote Skier mansion in Rondebosch, which is now home to the world-famous Kirstenbosch Gardens. Rhodes had no family at his side because he had no family. This in itself is a desperate statement about the life of such a powerful man. He never married. He appeared to be asexual in some ways, but whatever he chose to be, bisexual some say, homosexual say others, there's no doubt he was a colossus of the time. So he slipped away, lying on his single bed in a small cottage in Musenberg, gazing out at False Bay. On the 27th of January 1938, Rhodes Cottage there was declared a national monument in the Government Gazette because of its historical significance. The Rhodes Cottage Museum was finally opened by the May of Cape Town in 1953. The man who had built the De Beers Empire, who had funded the expeditions into what was to become Rhodesia, who had fought the Boers in Kimberley, who wanted to grow the empire from Cape to Cairo, and who epitomized that very empire, had died of a pauper's disease called TB. There are two items in the museum which I think are symbolic. One, a long conference table, which was in the boardroom at De Beers. The other is a wooden kist in which Rhodes brought all his worldly possessions when he landed in South Africa. He had arrived with almost nothing and has left a legacy that is debated. His name still elicits fierce argument. His statue has been removed from various sites at universities and in towns, and students of colonial history study him with a grim 21st century determination. Nevertheless, the Rhodes Scholarship remains one of the most sought after in academic circles. And after he died, Rhodes' body was transported more than 1,500 miles north to western Zimbabwe in the Matopas Hills near Bulawayo. The grave is almost forgotten in the back and forth of South African news gathering, and yet, as a testament to contradiction, his remains lie under a huge, thick slab of stone atop a granite hill where lizards scamper, and now and again someone vandalizes the steel lid. He preferred burial in an obscure jumble of boulders, far from the madding crowd, deep in the felt of southern Africa, far away from the London bankers who financed his mines. This is not an ode to a man who is both great and despicable. It's merely to say that history cannot be forgotten. It must be pursued. Cecil John Rhodes's name still dominates headlines at intervals, even through in the 21st century, and the bloke has been dead for 118 years. Well, with that slightly abuncular fact slapping us in the face, it's time to say goodbye. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. And you can contact me through the website abwarpodcast.com or through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next week, please stay healthy, avoid groups, wash your hands, stay strong. Fuss bait, folks. Goodbye. <laughs> Een zonder gedaan langs die moeier die ze wel het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O breng mij terug naar die Oudransval, daar waar mijn zare woont. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn zare mare. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom.